0: All right, we are continuing in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be beginning in chapter 5 this morning, looking at the first 10 verses there. And we're hearing something we've already heard before. We've been hearing this a lot already, uh, but we're driving home the point a little further. The author has convinced his audience already, he's convinced us that Jesus is a high priest, and we need a high priest. and now he goes on to emphasize how Jesus meets all of the qualifications of a high priest. All right, and they're familiar with this. They know what high priests were. They know what the requirements for high priests were. And the author's using that now. He's using what they already know to show that Jesus is all of those things. He has done all of that and more. Okay, So let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning of verse 1. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Father in heaven, we thank you as, as we do each time we come to your word. We thank you. We thank you for its direction, for its wisdom, for its instruction. Lord, that when we come to your word, we are coming to you to find out more about you, to find out more about ourselves and one another. God, thank you for the gift of your word, and I pray that you would be with me. God, if I ever stand here and think I am not entirely dependent on you, Shut up my mouth. Help me to rely on you in this moment. And God, feed your sheep this morning from your word. Be pleased to use me to do it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to be a high priest, we can see here, we, you have to meet three qualifications. So let's lay a little, little groundwork, and then we'll get into what the author really begins to hammer on, which is Jesus' suffering and how that qualified him to be our great high priest, and how he uses suffering in our lives to equip us to minister to others. All right? So first, three qualifications. He had to be human, verse 1. It says they're chosen from among men. So a high priest had to be human, and Jesus was and is, is to this day. God and man. Second, he had to be appointed. We see in verse 1. A high priest doesn't just take this honor to himself, it says, verse 4, but only when called by God just as Aaron was as a high priest. You know, a high priest couldn't just exalt himself to be made priest, verse 5, he was appointed by God to act on behalf of men toward God. Okay? And verse 5 says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then thirdly, a high priest had to offer sacrifices there at the end of verse 1. So three qualifications. He had to be human, he had to be appointed, he had to offer sacrifices. And what you begin to recognize is how much more able Jesus was and is to be a high priest for God's people because he was human but without sin. Appointed by God as a son and not only offered a sacrifice but was the sacrifice I think we said in a previous sermon, he's like the chef and the meal, the one who prepares the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Jesus not only meets these requirements of high priest, he surpasses them. Jesus is better, as we've said over and over again in the book of Hebrews so far. That's really the theme of the book that ties it all together. But here's what the author isn't saying. You don't need a high priest anymore. That's not what He's saying. He's underscoring they still need. We still very much need a high priest, and Jesus is it. Needing a high priest has not gone away for us as Christians. We still need someone to act on our behalf in relation to God and to make atonement for our sins and to make intercession for us, and Jesus is the only one that can do that. We talked about that a lot last week, that we dare not represent ourselves before God. We don't represent ourselves before God. We need an intercessor. We need someone who will intervene on our behalf, someone who will speak for us and represent us before God. And where we get into trouble and feel like we can't come to God, if you remember from last week, is when we try to skip those steps because we know coming in our own flesh, coming on our own accord, just doesn't feel right because it's not. Without Jesus, you can't approach holy, almighty God. So, here's the thing the author keeps harping on. I'm going to keep harping on it too, okay? Is that that intercessor has to be a man. Like I said before, we've, we've, we've heard this already. I realize that. But we need to be reminded of how important Christ's humanity is. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh. It was a requirement for him to be a man in order to be our high priest. In the days of his flesh, it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. So he wasn't, Jesus wasn't just playing the part of a man. He wasn't just God in a man suit. No, he was flesh, he says. Yeah, that's, a, that's a more raw term to get at that idea. He's made of the same stuff that we are. And here's why we're bringing this up again, why the author's making such a big deal out of it. Because y'all, if you've never thought about it before, make sure you get this today. If Jesus had not been a man, your salvation would be impossible. It would not be possible. He had to keep both ends of the deal. God's end of the deal and man's. I can't help but think of uh, Genesis chapter 15. I realize it's been a long time since we were there. We're almost through the whole book of Genesis at this point. But you remember in Genesis 15, Abram, God's promised Abram, your descendants, and he has no children. His wife's barren. And he says, no, listen to me, what I tell you. don't Live by faith, not by sight, right? I'm telling you, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the land that I'm promising you will be yours. He says, how will I know? And he says, here's how. Let's get some animals. Let's cut them in half. And let's put one half on this side of the the aisle. And let's put this half on this side of the aisle. And just have a bloody mess through the middle. And let's walk through that together. This was a symbol of, of cutting a covenant. You cut a covenant. Let's walk through this bloody path together saying i'm going to hold up my end of this covenant my end of the bargain and you're going to hold up yours and if either one of us fails to hold up our end of the deal may this be what happens to us and you remember that part where abraham walked through there with god no you don't you know why he was napping god put him into a deep sleep and you remember that that picture a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces together Abram didn't walk through the pieces with God. God passes through the pieces representing both parties. God keeps his end of the covenant. He keeps man's end of the covenant and pays man's penalty as man for breaking the covenant. See how that works? In order for God to keep all ends of that covenant, in order for him to accomplish his plan to redeem a people to himself, God himself would have to take on flesh and suffer in the place of man. The one who would represent God in that covenant would have to be a man and represent man in that covenant. And in order to represent man in the covenant, he would have to suffer being a man and suffer for the sins of man. Take a deep breath. That's a lot. I know. Thick theology in the book of Hebrews, as we've said before. It's tying some really big biblical themes together. It's pulling pieces down from this huge overarching meta narrative that runs throughout all of Scripture. And then it just blows them all up, right? It's Jesus enlarged to show detail. That's what we have in, in the book of Hebrews. So here's what we see boiling it down. In order for Jesus to be our high priest, he had to suffer. Suffering comes into focus more here in these verses now than previously. It's not like the first time we've touched on this, but it comes into focus a little bit more clearly here that Jesus' is suffering makes him our, high, our perfect high priest. That's the main thrust of the passage. In order for Jesus to be our high priest, he had to suffer. But here's what that means for you and for me, and what I really want to make sure you take home with you today is suffering makes for good ministry. Suffering makes for good ministry. Jesus' suffering with you and for you enables you to suffer with him for others. That's huge. I don't want you to miss that. Because last week we talked a lot about what Jesus' suffering with you and for you does for you. What that means for you. But there's something here we can learn about what suffering with Christ means for us in our relationships to others. Suffering is good for ministry. makes for good ministry. Jesus had to suffer. You hear that. How does that strike you? Jesus suffered. Jesus had to suffer. I mean, we don't particularly like the idea of that, do we? Yeah? It doesn't make you smile right off the bat. You're kind of like, mm, that's... We don't like that, and we think, sometimes we may be tempted to think, like, surely God could have come up with some better way, but no. Jesus had to suffer weakness, verse 2, in order to be an effective high priest for us. Why? It says it right there in the text, because he had to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He had to suffer weakness to to deal gently with the with the ignorant and the wayward. That's us, by the way. We're the ignorant and the wayward. So good thing he did. Good thing he suffered weakness so he could deal gently with me, deal gently with you. That's who Jesus offered himself a sacrifice for. He didn't come, remember, for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He suffered that weakness so that he could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And here's where the sacrifice that Jesus offers is better. And one of the ways in which uh, he's he's a better high priest than earthly high priests is earthly high priests had to offer sacrifice for their own sins as well. You see that there? Verse three. Okay. Priests were obligated to offer sacrifice for their own sins. The good thing is that means they could relate to you. right. A high priest has the ability to do that. He has the ability to relate to you, but he can't save you because he had sin himself. Jesus relates to you and saves you because unlike the rest of us, he had no sin of his own. But he can relate to you because he suffered. That's what gives him that ability to be able to relate to you. What we see in verse 7 is that he really suffered. He didn't pretend at it. He didn't just pick it up to see what it smelled like. He tasted it. He, when he lived, he really lived. He experienced. When he was in the flesh, it says, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So something that we have to make sure we we understand, and I think most of you here do this morning, but I think a lot of Christians may miss this. You know, we can't imagine Jesus just came down and was hanging out, biding his time, you know, doing some cool stuff, just waiting on the clock to run out before he finally went to the cross and died. No, he, he lived. He experienced. He endured suffering. Because of that, he can relate to you very well. So here's what I want those of you who have endured great hardship to know. Your pain is not for nothing. It's not meaningless. It's not just something in the past. It's not just a skeleton in the closet. Your pain was not for nothing. Some of those most tragic things that have happened in your life that you can think of, are tools for ministry that have been given to you that may not have been given to somebody else, not in the same measure anyway. I'm going to make it personal here for a minute and perhaps touch a nerve. If you've suffered loss, if you've suffered betrayal by a parent, a spouse, some other significant other or friend or or somebody that you trusted, that just trampled that trust and never even apologized for it. If you have suffered something as horrid as physical, emotional, or even sexual abuse, there was a time when you didn't know how or why something so awful could happen to you, wasn't there? And you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, how prevalent that kind of thing is here under the sun in this fallen world corrupted by sin. You know, there are a lot of other people that have experienced the same things and they don't know where to go. But you do. You learned along the way. They don't know what to do with the feelings of guilt and shame uh, lack of self-worth. I mean, feelings that don't even belong to them, but they hold on to anyway. And all that confusion and turmoil, there's a temptation to just sort of clam up, to suffer alone, to suffer privately. You know that, don't you? But what I hope you also know, Christian, is that because you have suffered that yourself, if you have, and because you know you have the words and a promise of a living hope in Jesus Christ, you are most fit to minister to someone struggling with those same things. Suffering makes for good ministry. None of us wants to suffer. None of us signs up for that. You know, we got, got sign-up sheets out there for Bible study. And, you know, we'll get some names on there and some people show up. Well, if we, we offer, uh, you know, come suffer, I bet we don't get anyone to sign up. What do you think? You know, we're just not going to put our name on that line. This just doesn't sound like something we want to participate in. We just don't voluntarily go into suffering. None of us wants to suffer. But there's something about suffering that makes for good ministry. It just is. Jesus suffered. And when he suffered, his prayers were heard. Look there at verse 7 again. He was heard because of his reverence. That, That teaches us something about our attitude toward our suffering. Jesus was willing, even in his suffering, to submit to whatever God had for him. And what God had for him was suffering. Let's just ask, was it worth it? Was his suffering worth it? Do you think yours won't be? submitting to suffering in this life as Jesus did is something that grows us and equips us to minister to others it frankly makes us more like Jesus and I just want to say this hopefully it goes without saying but I'll say it anyway submitting to suffering doesn't mean laying down and making yourself a doormat for other people it doesn't mean not defending yourself from yourself, defending yourself and others, uh, from harm, from injustice. It means when things come into your life that are unwelcome, when things come into your life that are unexpected, when things come into your life that are uncomfortable and unlovely, your attitude toward God, and not necessarily the circumstances, is one of submission, humbly accepting what the providential hand of God brings, even if he brings suffering. No one suffered more than Jesus, but someone else we think of when we think about suffering, don't we? We think about uh, the suffering, you know, uh, Jeremiah suffered. Um, We think of Job. I think a lot of our minds go to Job, don't they? If you've read your Bible and you hear suffering, often think of Job. He lost literally everything in one fell swoop. You know, someone comes and tells him his, uh, some of his animals were taken and the servants who were with those animals were killed. And then before that guy can finish explaining this to Job, another servant comes and he says, fire came down from heaven and burned up all your sheep and all the servants that were with him. And before that guy gets done speaking, someone else comes and says, some raiders came out of the hills and took all the camels and killed all the servants that were with him. That guy can't finish that sentence before another guy comes and tells him, a house fell on your children. All of your sons and daughters are dead. And before, just, just in the blink of an eye, everything that Job had ever worked for in his life was gone. He didn't have any way of rebuilding it either. I mean, he had like a handful of all the employees that he had. All his employees are dead, except for a few got no way to rebuild, and all of his children are dead. And it's not like he didn't mind, you know? Sometimes when you read Scripture, don't you sort of dehumanize people a little bit? We're, you know, Somehow we either, we either read them as being sort of superhero-like that, can't, that we can't really relate to, or, you know, those dumb disciples... No, relate to that for a minute, okay? Get in Job's shoes. It's not like he didn't mind. He didn't just brush this off. It wasn't like, he was so pious, he was so holy, he was just like, no big deal. But here's what he said. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord. And you know what the Lord brought? More suffering. And it brought him down low. Real low. But while he was wondering where God was in all of his suffering, the thing that he learned that was most important is who God is. When he's looking around wondering where God is in all of these circumstances, he learns, finally, who God is. And that's what the author Hebrews wants these people to know. He knows they're suffering. He knows they're worried. He knows they're wrestling with the question. If Jesus is so good, and if he's done all this stuff, and he's making intercession for me, he's interceding for me, then why is my life such a mess? Why is it so hard? Why am I suffering? And the answer is that one who is so good, who went to the cross for you, that is interceding for you now, he suffered too, and he did it with humility. When he cried out to God in his pain and his suffering, asking God to let this cup pass, this cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink. When he asked God, will will you let this cup pass in the Garden of Gethsemane? God told him no. No, this is my plan for you. And he accepted it. He didn't complain about it. He didn't complain about how he deserved better. And here's what's different about Jesus and us, right? He did deserve better. He he did. He, He deserved better. But he suffered that for us, being submitted to the will of the Father. And don't get it twisted when we read that story, right? Not begrudgingly. We know in Scripture because of the joy set before him. The joy of calling you his own. That suffering makes good ministry. Now, important to note, Jesus' suffering can atone for sin. Yours can't. But it's still useful. Your suffering's still useful, so catch that, okay? Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Verse 8, that's what suffering does. He was made perfect through the suffering. Verse 9, Now, we read that and we say, well, how does that work, right? How is he made perfect? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? If he was already perfect, how then is he made perfect? Well, consider what it is that we're talking about here. Jesus is high priest. He was made a more perfect high priest because of his suffering. As a result of his suffering, it says, verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So, again... The result of your suffering won't be the source of salvation for anyone. But I want you to consider what the result of your suffering can be. There are two responses to suffering. One is to remain so focused on yourself and what's happened to you that it breaks you. in a bad way suffering breaks you either way doesn't it but how you respond to suffering can break you in a good way or a bad way you can cave in and become embittered and angry at god and resentful of people around you who maybe haven't suffered the way that you have haven't experienced some of the things that you have and so you become resentful toward them and say that's not fair i deserve better that's one response That's the most common response. That's a natural response. We should expect that people would respond that way in the flesh, but it's the wrong response. It's not the Christian response. See, when you respond to suffering in humility and submission to God, you testify to others what it is you believe about God and about yourself. When you receive suffering, understanding... That as much as it hurts in the moment, it is a perfecting tool he uses in your life to sanctify you and to make you more useful in ministry in this life. Once you start to recognize all that, you start to matter to yourself less and others begin to matter more. Tim Keller riffing off of C.S. Lewis said something like this. He called it self-forgetfulness. And I think it's an important way to think of this. It's not that you think less of yourself, okay? It's not that you think less of yourself. It's that you think of yourself less. You see the difference? That's a good place to be. You know one of the ways to get there? Suffering. Suffering makes for some good ministry. It's a school where we learn obedience and submission to the will of our Father who is in heaven. Where we learn to be content in all circumstances. Where we learn what it really means to trust and to rely on the Lord. And how to consider it all joy when we face various trials like James says in chapter 1. You know, that might seem unimaginable to us to consider it joy when we suffer. You know, you hear that and you're like, that's that's some Christian superpower I don't possess. You know how you possess it? Responding to suffering well. When you handle suffering well, when you go through it faithfully, not only is it doing something in you but you become someone others see and say, wow. That's faith that works. That's not all talk. That's not all show. That faith is real. People can't help but say, what, who is this God that imparts such wisdom and that fights man's battles for him? Who is, who is this God that a man can walk in a furnace and come out unburned. And you can say, my God, the true and living God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, whose steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to generations of all those who love him and keep his commandments. That's who, that's how. How? Do you you have an older model Christian friend, a vintage age Christian friend? One with high mileage, a little bit of rust, a little wear and tear, side view mirror hanging off, you know, headlight out, one of those. If you don't have one of those, you need to make one of those. And we have some in here this morning. You need to get to know them. You younger folks especially, you need to cozy up to some of those rust bucket Christians. Because they've got stories they can tell. Ones that you'll remember after they're long gone. When you hear those stories, you'll think, man, that guy, that gal has been through it. Been through a lot. Seen a lot. But here's what's better. Here's what's cooler. When you go through it, or something like it, you'll be better prepared to endure it with grace and with humility than they probably were when they did. You'll make running to Christ your first reaction instead of your last resort. It's amazing how colorful and effective suffering makes our ministry to others. When you respond to it in faith and humble submission to the Father, like Jesus did. When it comes to suffering, we can can only ever look at it as something that's happening to us, or we can recognize it as something that's happening for us, something that God uses to sanctify us and to make us more useful in our ministry to others. Suffering makes good ministry, and I know all of us, on some level, at some point, have suffered in our lives. So the question is, what are you going to do with it? You know, ask yourself, how have I responded to it in the past? And and how will I respond to it next time? Don't hate me for saying this, but there will be a next time. Is it making you useful in your ministry to others in the church and outside of it? That's the question. And I know that weighs heavy on us. You know, we sit and we're like, well, got work to do now, right? Listen to me. There was a time when I came to church just to take and never give. Okay? Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt, the coffee mug, and the keychain. I was a lazy, immature, selfish Christian. Am I saying that's any of you? Absolutely not. But I am saying that my story is not unique. It's common in the church. And so what I ask you to consider is whether you are the exception or not. We limit ourselves, y'all, where we get stuck on ourselves. You know what I mean when I say that? We limit ourselves where we get stuck on ourselves. For the longest time, I didn't consider myself in any sort of position to minister to anybody else. I was a mess. I needed people to minister to me. But here's what you need to recognize. I want you to know both will always be true for you you will always need to be ministered to, and you will always need to be ministering to someone else. That's the way it works around here. And I really believe, y'all, as I was working through this, this sermon this week, I really believe the Lord has gifted King's Church in such a way and brought together a unique group of people And we've seen growth among the people here over a season where I really think the latter is going to begin to happen in some really big ways. The Lord's going to be using you to minister to one another and to others outside of this church in some really big ways. Y'all are ready. Not coincidentally, we're going to be talking about moving on from milk to solid food next week because it's in the very next verses didn't plan it but i am i'm calling on you this morning brothers and sisters to recognize okay that we serve a god who knows what to do with broken pieces we serve a god who knows exactly what to do with broken things no matter what you've suffered in the past no matter what you may be going through right now you are not broken enough that you cannot be useful he knows what to do with broken things, and suffering makes for good ministry. We're all struggling, okay? You can't ever look at someone else across the, across the pew and be like, well, you know, they seem to be doing all right. Guess what? They're probably not. They're struggling with something. It might not be what you're struggling with, but they're struggling. What are we, if not strugglers, as Christians? Hopefully, none of us is so proud, so haughty that we think we've got it all together, Well, if you don't think that about yourself, why would you think that your neighbor thinks that about themselves? Let's just all confess, we're all strugglers here, and we can be used by God nonetheless. Jesus came from heaven. I want to encourage you with this as we think about this, about being useful in ministry. Remember that Jesus came from heaven to be with us and meet us right where we are. That's where he started. He came to meet us right where we are. And there's an example there for us in how we minister to others. And let's just get this out here, just, just to get in front of this argument. Aren't we all called to minister to others? We know that, don't we? Don't we know that? Not all of us are called to stand in pulpits and preach the way I am this morning. But aren't we all called to minister to others, to each other in the church, and to be able to share the gospel with people that are close to us but far from God? Sure. And here's something you can be sure of. Everyone in here and out there is experiencing life, and life is messy. Everyone is somewhat anxious about the future, anxious about upcoming elections or whatever else. We're going to go to war with Russia. The dollar's losing its whatever. Everybody's freaked out about something. We're anxious about the future because life is uncertain. Living this long, however long it's been, whether it's 11 years or 82, you know by now life is uncertain. Surprises happen. So, on some level, we're all anxious about the future. People are dealing with difficulty in relationships, struggling in their careers, struggling with the parenting of their own children, having difficulty with their finances, dealing with illness of, of loved ones around them, and maybe even death. Everyone is living out a reality under the sun where life has been kissed with the curse of death due for sin. And aren't we? as Christians, blood-bought, redeemed people, supposed to minister to them? Isn't that what we were saved for? To be salt and light? To walk in the good works that were prepared for us to walk in? What are those good works? Jesus sums up the law perfectly, doesn't he? Love God, love neighbor. Well, how do you love your neighbor? Well, one way is you minister to them. Meet them where they are. We ask, well, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't know where to begin. Start by showing up. That's it. Start by showing up. That's what Jesus did. If you forget everything else I say this morning, and please don't because it's the word of God that you've heard this morning. If you forget everything else, remember this. Start by showing up and meet people where they are. Not where you think they should be. Jesus didn't do you like that. Meet people right where they are. Just show up. Half of ministry is just showing up. Being present, being available. So I want to encourage you here, if you're someone who's struggling to see how you can be used by God to minister in your sphere of influence, just start by showing up. Be there. You know, not, not just with people who you think might be hurting think might need you, because guess what? They don't need you. (laughs) They need Jesus. Don't just try to identify the ones who who seem needy, like they they might need you. Sometimes you don't know who's hurting until you show up, and when you do, you know, stuff starts to come out. You learn more about them, and the Holy Spirit and those conversations begins to prompt you, and you begin to be able to bring a good word to make a heart glad, And you'd be surprised, y'all. You would. You start trying this out, you give this a whirl, you'd be amazed at how often he pairs you with someone you actually have something to offer from your own experience or something that you can relate to or a passage that you've been meditating on. It's almost like he's sovereign or something. Like he plans these things out. We have the tendency, though, to overcomplicate everything, don't we? Don't we do that? We make doing ministry about us. Somehow we take even that and make it about ourselves, how prepared we are, or what we believe is the right course of action to take in this particular situation. Like there's a right button to push and a wrong one, and we're so afraid of making the wrong decision and messing it up that we don't engage at all because we think we're not qualified. We are not, but Jesus is. Jesus is qualified, and he can use even you. We make it too much about us. We think we have to diagnose things properly in order to find the right prescription. But here's the deal. There's only one prescription. Nine times out of ten, all you got to do is show up. And he'll let you know how much and what amount. I'm reluctant to use myself as an example here, but I'm gonna because I'd hate for any one of you to think I'm a professional that never struggles with these things and I don't ever have apprehensions and it's all just a breeze for me. I'd hate for you to think that. I spoke to a man I've known for years that I admire a great deal this past week. Uh, He's one of those old rust bucket Christians. Seen a lot, been through a lot and he's helped I don't know how many hundreds Of people, myself included, walk through some really difficult times in their lives. And I know this guy has been through a lot recently. And it's stuff that I don't personally have uh, one-to-one life experience with. And he's a lot older than me. He's a lot wiser than me. You know, so who am I to minister to this man? And there it is. It's not about me. It's not about who am I? Who is Jesus? This guy has mileage, more mileage than me by a world tour. And I don't don't know what it's like to be in his shoes right now and to be dealing what he's dealing with, but I know he's hurt. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to suffer, and he's suffering. So I did the only thing I could. I just called him. He lives kind of far away, so I couldn't just go see him and show up somewhere. But rather than just send a text, I called him. And I said, how are you doing? And he lied to me. I said, fine. So I said, how are you doing really? How are you, how are you really doing? You have to ask that question because people will say, oh, I'm good. No, they're not. Y'all, I hung up that phone after our conversation in tears Because I knew God had allowed me to minister not just to a hero of mine, not just to a mentor of mine, but to a child of God who in that moment needed encouragement from Him and His Word. I was unprepared. You hear me? I was unprepared, but God wasn't. God wasn't unprepared. I couldn't relate completely what he was going through. But Jesus can. And he uses us. He uses your suffering so that you can relate, sometimes just enough for you to just show up. Suffering makes good ministry because our suffering gives us what it gave Jesus, compassion on our fellow man. It teaches us obedience and submission to the will of our Father in heaven and it enables us to relate to others in their suffering so that we can minister to them. As I said before, no one one suffered more than Jesus. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that we could drink this cup of the new covenant in the Lord's Supper. To feed upon him for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, as we confessed earlier when we went through the, the catechism on that. We're reminded of his death in the Lord's Supper. His body was broken, his blood shed for us. But here's something to remember, y'all. I want to make sure you get this, okay? This is not a somber occasion. It is a solemn one. It's a solemn occasion, but it's not a somber one. So come with sincerity. Come with reverence. But come with great joy. That's what Christ's suffering afforded you, great joy in your salvation, those of you who are members of King's Church or have been around for a while know that we fence the table, all right? We fence the table. Simply, that just means the Lord's Supper is only for those who are united to Christ by faith, okay? If, if that's not you, you are always welcome in this church. I want to make that perfectly clear. But this table is for those who have received the gift of God's grace and mercy by faith in Christ alone. And they've made a public profession of that faith and then united themselves to a particular body in a Bible-believing church and come under the care of, of that church. If that's not you, again, you are always welcome in this church. But this is the Lord's table. It's not King's Church's table. It's not my table. I don't make the rules. He does. If you are those for whom the Lord bled and died. I want you to remember and get excited about this as we come forward. This is not just symbolic, okay? You realize that? This is not just symbolic. It's not just a ritual we go through the motions for, okay? This is an effectual means by which God communicates his grace to you. It is an effectual way. It's something that he uses to strengthen us in our faith. This is sacred. This is special. So let's enjoy it. A quick reminder of how how we're going to do it, all right?